the United States of America is called a Christian nation. Christian nation. Christian nation. It's time for a moment of clarity with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Let us pray that this nation does come to a moment of clarity. Faith. Faith. Politics, politics, history, history, and current events. Current events. Current events. And now, your host, Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily, but in the meantime, I am Derek Stone with a moment on sports, part one. The Detroit Tigers defeated the Cleveland Indians 1-0 this past Wednesday. Tigers left fielder Robbie Grossman drove in Nico Goodrum with a sacrifice fly in the eighth inning after Goodrum doubled and advanced to third base on a sacrifice bunt by Jake Rogers, who tagged out Indians right fielder Josh Naylor at home plate in the second inning after he tried to score on a double to center field by Owen Miller. Detroit starting pitcher Jose Urania allowed three hits and recorded two strikeouts in five and two-thirds innings of work. Jose Cisnero, Michael Fulmer, and Gregory Soto, who registered his fifth save of the season, combined for five strikeouts in three and a third innings out of the Tigers' bullpen. Now here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. And good afternoon, folks. I learned day to day. Just about the time where I figure out where everything's going and what direction I'm heading, things change. I had a whole show planned today, and uh, then then uh, my co-host went and made it a little bit more interesting by accident. Uh, he had a guest that was going to be on his show earlier, and due to technical reasons, uh, well, we get that guest on today, so um, we'll be talking with Ed's guest here in a bit. But first of all, I want to just a shout out or a hello to those who uh, lost members of families in in wars. Uh, This is a day that we remember them. This is the weekend we remember them. Uh, And I want you to remember that uh, a lot of these soldiers that went to defend these countries, as Ed so adequately pointed out, went to defend the country. They didn't go there to die for the country. Dying just happened to be part of defending this country. And uh, they fought for us to be able to have freedom of thought, freedom of choice, freedom of religion. And we live in a cult- culture today that is very much fighting against actually what these soldiers fought for. They're, they're, they're part of what we call the woke culture, the cancel culture. Um, and, and it's spreading, it's spreading like a cancer in this world. For the last few weeks, we had shows, um, fighting against anti-Semitism. I guess in this world, it's okay to, it's not okay to hate anybody based on, on race or where they're from, but it is okay to hate them if they're from Israel. I would argue hate is wrong regardless of where they're from or the color of their skin and hating them just because they're from Israel is wrong. And as I had my show last weekend, there was a young lady who has listened for quite a few years to Moment of Clarity, and I hope she keeps listening. And not just because she agrees with, not because of what she agrees with me on, but why she disagrees with me. I think the more she is allowing herself to have the conversation, the more she will understand where I am coming from. And maybe she can try to tell me where she's coming from. But she was extremely upset because she had 
openly admits she is not a big fan of people from Israel. And if I didn't apologize to her for, for uh, how do I put this? She wanted me to retract what I said about replacement theology and retract what I said that uh, about Israel and, and jump on her bandwagon. And if I did not jump on her bandwagon, she had stopped listening and tell her friends to stop listening. That is her free choice. And the people that we remember fought for her freedom to make that choice. But I hope she continues to listen because it, it might actually, I don't want her woke up. I want her to wake up. <laughs> All right. Um, so conversation today was going to be primarily about the woke culture, the cancel culture. And, um, and I guess things worked out really well um, that uh, we get, uh, Ed, I'm going to let you introduce the guest. Why didn't you do oh. that? Well, this is my friend, Bill Federer. We're still friends, even though <laughs> he showed up for Rick's show. Even though he likes me more. I got it. <laughs> you more. And, and uh, Bill is, of course, the author of many books. He has a, a, a website called AmericanMinute.com. Uh, people need to go there and sign up for his daily newsletter where he has interesting stories from history daily. I mean, these are interesting. That guy writes interesting books and it's not just dead history it's real history and he writes how it affects you know today and uh different books that talk about the situation we find in today one of his most recent books is socialism and i had him on my show about this so uh, last year the real history from plato to the present and uh yeah another book he has um uh, America has a king, and he explains why. Bill, what is the name of that book? America, uh, the kingship, the king of America. What is that book? It, it, it close. It's who is the king in America, and there, obviously it's the people. The word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. So we, the people, are the king, and the politicians are our servants. Uh, but that's unique in world history. For most of world history, it's the other way around. Uh, kings have subjects who are subjected to their will and. It's basically run by a deep state with a political boss at the top. And whether you call him a, a Pharaoh Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar, it's, or a El Presidente, or a Chairman Mao, a Comrade Stalin, the name changes, but its power gravitates into the hands of one person. And they rule through fear. And, uh, but America's founders broke away from the King of England and flipped it and made the people the king. And, um, and I go through where those ideas came from. And ultimately, they came from ancient Israel. So Israel, well, the first 400 years they came out of Egypt, that was the first instance in recorded history of a nation with millions of people and no king. And it worked because every citizen was taught the law and they were accountable to God to follow the law. But uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. But uh, you know, like the title of that book is Who is the King in America? And uh, it's an overview of 6,000 years of world history and why America is unique. It's all yours, Rick. Uh-oh, Rick lost his audio. Okay, nope, nope, nope. I don't care what Ed says. I want you to get ahead of yourself and finish that thought where you're heading because it's wonderful. Right, so um, uh, I had this idea uh, to, to study every single civilization that has ever existed on planet Earth. It took a couple of years and I went back to uh, Sumeria, the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia, and uh, that's where the in invention of writing was. So even Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist in his Cosmos TV series, is over in the Middle East and he says, it was here between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers 5,000 years ago that we learned how to write. And then he goes on with the rest of his program. It's like we learned, so about 5,000 years ago would be around 3,000 BC. 
lo and behold, just about every secular history book acknowledges that writing civilization started around three or 4,000 BC, and we're around 2080. And so all of that together is around five or 6,000 years of records, human beings actually writing down human records. And and um, anyway, so I looked at the, the records and you have, uh, you know, Nimrod Tower of Babel. That's the very first story of, of civilization gathering together and uh, Nimrod ruled through fear. Um, the Jewish commentator Josephus said he Nimrod wanted to build his tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. And then Nimrod made everybody in the town bake bricks and bring them or he'd kill them. And so it was defiant against God, oppressive over man. God comes down, confuses the languages, the people scatter. But it's almost like every generation since has tried to rebuild the Tower of Babel. But each time it comes around, it's a little bit worse because there are military advancements where the uh, the dictator can kill more people. So instead of killing with a rock, like Cain killed Abel, they're killing with bronze weapons or iron weapons or big long phalanx spears that Alexander the Great had or, or scimitar swords that the Muslims had or gunpowder that the Chinese invented. The weapon improves, but it's that same fallen nature of Cain killing Abel. It keeps getting bigger until you got you know, the king of Spain had the largest empire, the, you know, France, and ultimately the king of England. He was a globalist. The sun never set on the British Empire. He had all of India, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, if um, uh, if he could have, he would have set himself up as a, a one world government dictator. But America's founders broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. It was uh, amazing because of a 3,000 mile ocean, because France, the number two biggest power, got in the war and helped give Britain a run for its money. We had this little window where we became a brand new country. And our founders flipped it and made the people the king. So kings have subjects who are subjected to their will. Republics and democracies have citizens. And the word citizen is co-king, co-ruler. So you're a citizen of America, you're a, a co-ruler of America. We pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic. You're basically pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. It's a real unique bottom-up form of government versus top-down. Unfortunately, after every crisis, people surrender their freedoms and it flips back to a top-down form of government. And uh, it's, it's sort of like wearing a lot of suntan oil and you're trying to float in the pool on top of a beach ball. It's really difficult and it just always wants to flip back. Uh, people ruling themselves is a very, very delicate, tenuous type of thing. And it's real easy for a crisis to come along and knee-jerk reaction, people that are surrender their freedoms of somebody promising to bring safety and order. But in the process, they give up their bottom-up form of government and it reverts back to a top-down dictatorship. What you know, kind of crisis do you have in mind? I'm sorry, Rick, but I either ask that question. What kind okay, of crisis? Ask the question, said it. Ask it again. What kind of crisis might come up that you're thinking of? Right. Well, uh, you know, at the very beginning, the first invention recorded was a plow. Cain was a tiller of the soil, and so, and then people started hitting each other with them, and they turned into weapons. And then people gravitated together off the farm to form cities for protection. And when you get people together, someone's a little better at knowing how to fight than the rest, and everyone says, "You be our captain." Sort of like the children of Israel go to Jabeth and say, "Hey, you be our captain, right?" Or Gideon or somebody, and uh, and then after you win. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, this captain has kids who claim to be a special family. Everybody wants to butter up to them. It turns into a political family, turns into a political machine, turns into a gang, turns into a, a, a mob, a, a top-down form of government. 
And so in their original fear was being attacked. But over the centuries, um, you had philosophers that come along that want to intentionally create crises to intentionally cause people to give up their freedoms. And uh, a classic is uh, Machiavelli. He lived 500 years ago in Italy. Italy was a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena, they always fought. And Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting. So he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end, because it'll stop this infighting, that any means necessary to get there is justified. Light, cheat, steal. So if a prince conquers a city, the people in the city would hate him. But if this prince pays criminals to kill cows, burn barns, set things on fire, create panic, the people will cry out for help. The prince will come in and get rid of the very people he bribed to create the crisis. Nobody will know the better for it, and everyone will praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house, set it on fire. You go around the front of the house, sell a fire extinguisher. And they'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. You know that quote better as you never want a crisis to go to waste. It's an opportunity to do those things you couldn't do before, uh, Rahm Emanuel. Or Hillary Clinton said, an old friend of my husband's and mine says, you know, never waste a good crisis. So you and I see a crisis. Our response is how can we help people through it? Ambitious politicians see a crisis. Their response is how can we usurp powers and rights away from the people so we can push our agenda? And um, anyway, th that was Machiavelli. If you want, I can tell you about Hegel. And he uh, sort of perfected it uh, to what we have today. I would I'd like to first make a comment and, and then you can... Uh, go into Hegel and um, also comment on what I'm about to comment on. <laughs> uh, the Bible, the Bible in, in in the Book of Romans. Now, now, Bill, I'm a pastor, so I'm going to go to the Bible every now and then. Hope you don't mind. But the Bible in the Bible tells us in the Book of Romans that the government, or that God gives the government the sword to wield, and we forget something in this nation that we are the government, that we are the ones that God, get in this government, we are the ones God gave the sword to wield. And every four years, we vote on who we are going to select to wield that sword for us. But we forget then that it's still our sword to wield. And then we sit back and we let whoever we choose to wield that sword for us to do so in ways that we may not agree with. And we lose our voice. We have to remember that if we truly believe it, it, for those of us that are Christian, in the word of God, and that God gave the government the sword to wield, that that is us in this country, the people. I just wanted to make that comment based on what, what you are saying. So go yeah, ahead. Yeah, well, that's, that's brilliant. And you bring up one of the points I have in my book. Again, the title of the book is Socialism, the Real History from Plato to the Present. Is people say, well, gee, uh, socialism, uh, isn't that what the early church had? And I have to stop him and I say, there's a difference between voluntary and involuntary and church versus government. So the early believers voluntarily sold their land and they voluntarily laid it at the feet of the apostles for the church to distribute. They were not forced to sell their land and forced to put the money at the feet of Pilate for the Roman government to distribute, right? And so voluntary versus involuntary is a big thing. Uh, May I just, just real quick on that point, 
just real quick. Yes, it was voluntary, and they put it at the feet of the apostles. When a couple actually came and gave them half of what their property, they sold their property for, uh, and they lied, and they say they gave it to them all, um, then Peter says, it was up to you if you wanted to give it or not, and how much of it you gave. You didn't have to lie about it, right? They didn't force them. There was a total voluntary thing, and they didn't even have to give it all. <laughs> Right, and there are two commandments that actually affirm that. One is thou shalt not steal, and the other is thou shalt not covet. Well, what's stealing? That's taking something that belongs to somebody else, which implies that people got to own things. And coveting something that somebody else has, well, it implies that the other person has something that is theirs. And so God's into people having private property. When they go into the promised land, they divide it up and give it permanently to the families as each family's private property. If you if you have private property, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. Karl Marx called it being a capitalist. Marx says, communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. So, so if people have no private property, how can you be charitable? What are you gonna do, steal from somebody and now you're a thief to, to give it away? Um, no, God gives you private property. You have a free will to voluntarily Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. And, uh, you know, the sheep and the goats, when, Lord, did we care for you? And, well, you know, when 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 were you sick and we helped you? And uh, so this idea is God entrusts you with uh, your life and with things, and you can express your love for God by being moved upon in your heart to give away some of it, and that is called charity. But it's all voluntary. And um, And then the other thing I point out in the book is, there are clearly God gives commands to five groups. The first are individuals. The second is families. Third is businesses. Uh, fourth is church and fifth is government. So individuals, they are commanded among other things to give to the poor. Uh, the commands to the family are mostly relational. Husbands love your wives, children submit to your parents. There are a few commands of take care of your relative or you're worse than an infidel, you know. Business commands are mostly do an honest day's work, don't hold back wages. There is a command that says leave the gleanings of your field for the poor people to pick through. There are definitely commands for the church to take care of the poor. And historically the church has, they immediately started to feed the orphans and the widows. And then they started medical clinics and hospitals and dug wells and villages and started schools. And virtually all social programs were birthed out of the church. The government, there is no command for the government to take care of the poor. The command to the government is the shortest. Protect the innocent, punish the guilty. There's no command for the government to be involved in healthcare, for the government to be involved in education. I love the quote from Calvin Coolidge. He says, uh, just because something needs to be done does not mean it's the government's job to do it. Right. right? And uh, On your point, just, uh, and just to add in to your arsenal of uh, bullets you just fired at socialism, uh, I'm remember, reminded of the account in the Bible where Mary is anointing the feet of Jesus. And one of the apostles comes up and says, we should have sold that and given it to the poor. Jesus' response was, what she's doing is the better choice. And we will always have the poor amongst us. And the one who wanted to sell what was not his to give to the poor was Judas, who was just a few verses later after that story is called a thief. So, <laughs> so Judas could be the first socialist. Yeah, you, you could you could claim Judas is the first socialist. He wanted to take what was not his. He thought it was being used improperly, 
So he wanted to take something that was not his, sell it, and then provide for the poor. But we know about Judas that he was dipping his hand into that. And like every socialist, once they get everything from everyone, they start dipping their hand into it first before it goes out. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, Judas was the first socialist. You know, that's actually a, a phenomenon. Uh, and the saying is, whoever controls the purse strings has the power. So socialism sounds good on paper, on a chalkboard. Everybody's going to have the same amount of stuff. Question, who decides who lives in the nice house and who lives in the dumpy house? Who's in the government position actually doing the doling out of all this stuff? That person is presented with a temptation. They're going to, they, they, the temptation is that they'll funnel more stuff to those that want to support them in their job, want to keep them in office, want to keep them, uh, you know, in, in that position. And the other temptation is to hold off uh, those for the blessings from those that challenge them and right. those that. And so it becomes discretionary. And so anytime you have the government involved in redistributing anything, the people that are doing the redistributing like their jobs and they want to keep their jobs. And they uh, I mean, imagine if you worked for a company and you hired somebody and he wanted to make the company smaller. Uh, you would be like, hey, let, let's undercut. So that's like, elect. imagine electing a politician who wants to reduce the size of government. Well, if you're getting your job from the government, you're going to not like that person. You're going to want to undercut him and leak stuff on him and so forth. Right. That's called a deep state. Um, that has a question. Hold on, Phil. We can't see you. Raise your hand because your camera is pointed up at your ceiling. And Ed had his hand up and I just called on Ed. So... Yeah, I'll fix your camera. <laughs> I'm reminded of uh, uh, Animal Farm. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. I think this is the way the phrase goes. And the other is, if you talk about, you know, the size of government decreasing the size of government, you're going to kill all the real estate value in Arlington, Virginia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so once you get more people invested in wanting to have a bigger government. Uh, they want it to continue to grow and it turns into this snowball. It turns into this amoeba monster that just keeps wanting to grow and gobble up everything. And it's the beginning of the end of self-government. And um, Okay, Phil, Phil, one of my other co-hosts, has a question for you. Um, is it, do you mind if I call you Bill? Because you're on William on my screen. Yeah, Bill's but, fine, um, yeah. Bill's fine. Okay, uh, Phil, you have a question for Bill? Yeah. The question is, do you believe that uh, we are, we have lost our republic, and if we have lost them in the republic, what do you think we are in danger of losing it to? Do you think it's socialism, communism, or do you think another form of democracy like parliamentarianism? Right, um, a good question, Phil. Um, the one of my, after studying all the governments in the world. I uh, basically, if you can imagine this spectrum where one side is total government, the other side is no government. Total government power keeps concentrating into a black hole. It's ruled by one guy and his deep state administrators and rules through fear. And so fear is the, the electricity that makes a, a dictatorship work. The other side of the spectrum is no government. And, and there's maximum freedom, but it's anarchy unless each citizen is taught the law. And that's what happened with ancient Israel. They come out of Egypt where for 400 years they were slaves. 
Uh, they come into, you know, they're at Mount Sinai and they get downloaded the law. And the leave and I, I was trying to explain, find an analogy. And I thought, imagine if if uh, everybody downloads a behavioral app on their iPhone instead of a hey, GPS app that tells you Bill, how to turn a behavioral app. And that's what the Bill, law is. I got Bill. Uh, I got to ask you, can you come back after the break? Can you stay on for another segment? Sure, if you'd like. I, Okay, because we're coming up to a hard break, and even though you're still talking, they won't hear you out in, in radio land during the hard break, but I want to hear your answer, and uh, and I want to talk to you. Absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And uh, how much time do we have, Derek? Oh, I hear music. That means we're at the hard break. Folks, we'll see you at the other side. With your host, Pastor Richard Dietering, on Wham. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily, but once again, in the meantime, I am Derek Stone with another moment on sports. The Detroit Tigers defeated the New York Yankees 3-2 in 10 innings last night. Tigers third baseman Jamer Candelario plated Robbie Grossman with a single in the bottom of the third inning. Yankees second baseman Ronette Odor tied the game at one after he smashed a solo homer two innings later. Odor's teammate Aaron Judge scored on a pass ball in the top of the 10th inning to give New York a 2-1 lead, while Grossman belted the game-winning two-run four-bagger in the bottom of the 10th inning. Detroit starting pitcher Casey Mize lasted only five innings, but he allowed one run on five hits and recorded seven strikeouts. Five Tigers relievers combined to allow one run on six hits and register five strikeouts. Now here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. You know, listeners, I really wish sometimes that we didn't have commercial breaks so you could hear what we talked about during breaks. But if we didn't have commercials, we would be public radio, and then we wouldn't be having conversations like we're having now. So I guess... Thank you to our advertisers. And folks, if you want to have your business heard on this radio station, contact WAM Radio at uh, 734-961-1600. Get in touch with the marketing department, and they'll be happy to tell you how you can have your commercial on this radio station and on this show. Uh, One of the things we were talking about was a runoff from... Uh, I'm sorry, 734-971. Did I say that wrong? 734-971-1600. I probably gave you Ed's cell phone number. Uh, don't don't call that because he has nothing good to sell. I've been to his garage sales. Uh, 734-971-1600. And we would be happy to help you out with that. Uh, we're talking about just a runoff of Phil's question of where are we heading towards a... Towards a, a parliamentary type government or uh, socialism. And as our guest, Bill Federer, was talking to Phil, it hit, it reminded me, and I'll have him explain about the curves and everything else here in a second. It reminded me back in 1914, uh, the Russians revolted and uh, against the king and they went to a parliamentary type government. That lasted for a very short time. And, and this, this, this line that uh, Mr. Federer will tell us about here in a second, 
uh, is a part of it. it. It just decreased out of control or increased out of control this line and went from a parliamentary into a socialism. And, and we had people like Stalin who, folks, I don't care what you, it may have been a socialist communist go government, but Stalin was a dictator. And uh, so I think, Phil, to answer your question, I see it going towards the socialism. We, we the, the progressive movement is all about socialism. What, what kind of changes they put in the government will be temporary. But in the end, we're going to end up with a, with a Superman in power, so to speak, and he will be a dictator. That's my opinion. Let's get uh, our guest opinion on this. Uh, folks, uh, William Federer. Right. Well, also the French Revolution, right? So they got rid of their King Louis the Sixteenth, and they were going to have a republic, and it turns into chaos. They're chopping off 30,000 heads in the streets of Paris. And in the middle of that chaos, you have Napoleon seizes power as a dictator. So... Uh, so the, the parliamentary power uh, it has, apart from God, there is no uh, reason to uh, resist the power. Uh, when you realize that rights come from a creator and the government's job is to protect each individual's God-given rights, um, then the government is limited. When there is no God, it's just a power grab by the government and those in the government. And that's why I talk about in the book Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And can you please tell people where they can get your book? Oh, thanks. AmericanMinute.com. All right. AmericanMinute.com. Go there, folks. Uh, and I can tell you, just talking, the book's going to be fascinating. Matter of fact, I just ordered a copy. Uh, but uh, it, go ahead, Ed. Well, yeah, it is. It's a great book. It's it's a really good book. Uh, Bill and I discussed it on a show last year. When Bill was talking about the French Revolution and they're trying to form a republic, it occurred to me one of the reasons it went south so bad was because of their philosophical basis. Now, Bill had talked about the the Jews having no king for so long, and that was based on their theological belief, you know, in the law and into God as a lawgiver. But the French didn't have the same religious basis that the American colonists had. Is, is nope. that one of the reasons for the reason the two different revolutions went in two different directions, Bill? Yeah, it's a great contrast, American Revolution versus French. We had a great, great awakening revival prior to our revolution. And this is this religious revival, people coming to the Lord. Before France's revolution, they had Voltaire, and he was mocking God and making fun of Christianity. And, and so with the French Revolution, they decided to de-Christianize their country. They did not even want a seven-day week because it went back to the Bible. So they came up with a 10-day week called a decade week. Each day had 10 hours. Each hour had 100 minutes. Each minute had 100 seconds. They said 10 was the number of man because you count with 10 fingers. So they made every measurement in France divisible by 10. They called it the metric system. Maybe that's why I never really liked the metric system. Um, but they, they closed the churches. They turned them into temples of reason. They put a prostitute in Notre Dame Cathedral, covered her with a sheet. So this is the goddess of reason. Let's worship her. Uh, they, you know, chopped off the heads of whole orders of nuns. These nuns had started hospitals and they were trying to make them give up their Christian faith. And they were singing their church song and one by one, they get their head chopped off one less person singing each time. Uh, and so this was an effort and it turns into chaos. 
they chopped off, again, 30,000 heads in Paris. They put them on pikes, on sticks, and march them around and have their lewd parties. And then they, there was a rural area called the Vendee, far away from Paris. They thought they were safe, but all of a sudden, uh, the, the federal government army shows up and kills 300,000 men, women, and children in the Vendee, considered the first modern genocide. And it set the stage for every socialist revolution since. It's okay to have a bloody killing off of the old order, so then you can do something new. Liberty, equality, fraternity. Fraternity was their word for socialism. The fraternity, the group, the collective, the mob. And, um, and then equality can be understood two ways. In America, it was equal treatment before the law. In France, it was everyone having an equal amount of stuff. And if the fraternity, the group, thinks you have too much stuff, it can use the power of the state to take away your stuff, redistribute it, and even kill you, right? And so the French Revolution is the exact opposite of the American Revolution. That's why it quickly got taken over by a dictator, Napoleon. And uh, and then, again, that, that became the blueprint for every socialist revolution since. Okay, and Phil, did you... Uh, did, what, did uh, Bill answer your question, Phil? Oh, oh yeah, and, and 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 the thing is that what do you think uh, now uh, is the progression of this? Do you think we'll be able to return to republicanism, or you know, we've been away from it since Roosevelt really pushed the democracy uh, condition in the country? So now what we have is uh, people jumping back, but they very, very seldom refer to this as a republic. And if we don't have a republic, our constitution is almost useless. Yeah, Phil, you're, you're hitting it right on the head. And that's the, you were hanging on by a thread. And the, the question is, who's teaching the children, the next generation? And uh, I was thinking of a computer and how you have a flash drive and you plug in the flash drive and you can download information onto your computer. Um, if we're a spirit, mind and body, your mind, in a sense, is like a super fancy computer. It's more than that, but it's at least that. And your body's like the computer case, which makes it silly for people to argue over what color the computer case is. You know, red computers are better than blue. It doesn't matter what color the case is. What matters is what software is running on the computer. It doesn't matter what color somebody's skin is. It's what thinking is going on in their brain. And the gospel, in a way, is a behavioral software program. I mean, it's like, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Turn the other cheek. Bless those that curse you, right? But socialism, wokeism, is a software program. It's, it's, a, it's a virus. It's, a, in a sense, a corrupted file. It's malware. And so instead of loving your enemies, you cancel your enemies, right? Instead of, the, uh, in Ezekiel, it says the children do not pay for the sins of the parents. Uh, wokeism says the children must pay for the sins of the parents, right? Um, uh, the Bible has a definition of sin. Uh, Jesus says in the beginning, God made them male and female. Wokeism says you got to not just reject that, you have to embrace every kind of sex. And if you, it's not just embracing, you have to promote it and celebrate it because silence is violence. If you're not actually out there patting them on the back saying, go for it, you've committed a woke sin, right? So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hey, dude, cool. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You married a statue. Way to go. Hey, uh, we got a caller on the phone. We got to take it. It's Memorial Day. Hey, Rick, um, your, your point. Yeah. Memorial Day, I think, is about the nature of war. Uh, you've seen this change with Israel's Iron Dome. 
If you want to see how the nature of war has changed, you go to Raphael Defense on YouTube, and they can show you what kind of technology they have. It's like 100 years ago, the technology killed millions of people, and now the technology can keep people from getting killed. I like your response. All right. Thanks a lot for your call, Rick. Uh, I'll give a response first. Do you have any response to that, Bill? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, when you look through history, uh, whoever gets the new military advancement first gets a window of time with which they can conquer. And so uh, you had uh, the bronze weapon. I mentioned the iron weapon. You know, it was Alexander the Great that had these big, long phalanx spears. And with that, within one generation, he conquered all the way to India. Uh, and then you had the uh, the uh, the sword, uh, or sorry, the, the composite bow. So it could shoot as far as an English longbow, only it's a third of the size, and you could shoot it on horseback. And the Mongols got that first. And so they would have an army of hundreds of thousands of these Mongols with these composite bows, the recurved bows, um, that could shoot 300 yards. The enemy couldn't even reach them. And so the Mongols conquered from Korea to Hungary. Uh, but then the other countries caught up. And, and then the Muslims had the scimitar sword on horseback. The big invention then was the stirrup. Uh, Europeans would fight on horses, but uh, they would just sort of balance. But then the stirrup was invented in China, made its way across the Gobi Desert to China Silk Road. And the stirrup allowed you to fight in the saddle with more control. And, and uh, at a full gallop, these Muslims could slice them one in half. And then you have gunpowder invented by the Chinese, but then the Europeans perfected it, uh, made it corned gunpowder instead of mixing it on the battlefield, saltpeter and uh, sulfur and char, char, you know, the, they would mix it ahead of time and dry it out. And so it was 30% more explosive. So they had to come up with a new science of metallurgy and uh, develop cannons. And um, that, that's why it's always sort of interesting. They always criticize Europeans for uh, you know, conquering America or, you know, whole Hawaiian islands. It's like they were still back barely out of the Stone Age. I mean, they were some were using bronze weapons. Uh, every European, every Chinese, uh, the Ottoman Empire, they had cannons and guns and swords and everything. So so the Americas were going to be conquered by somebody. Hawaii had Hawaii had canoes. At the same time, you had a Russian Navy, a French Navy, a Spanish Navy, and they were so. Um, uh, but they they even um, what a study was done in a book called "Guns, Guns, Germs, and Steel." Uh, an author named um, Diamond, uh, but he talked about some islands in the Pacific, and one island got a little military advantage over the other. And what did they do? They uh, the other island uh, got conquered. So it just happens, and um, but the time period of advantage is getting shorter and shorter and shorter because the other side can can catch up, and it's gone from uh, you know advancements in metal to now it's advancements in technology, and these technological advancements are very powerful, they're game changers, but the other side can the the window of time for the other side to catch up it gets shorter, and so. It's sort of like every day somebody makes a computer virus and then you have to update your antivirus. But the next day somebody makes another virus and you have to update your antivirus. And and this is Jesus says the wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. And it's right. ultimately going to take a global aspect to it. Um, and, uh, and then I believe the Lord's going to come back. So that's what I believe. Uh, you know, speaking of technology, you look at this. We have guns today, folks, where you have a computer screen instead of a site that the soldier's looking into. And they have what's called smart bullets in it. 
they don't even have to see the quote air quote bad guy that they can pick up where that person is on the screen and the bullet will find them <laughs> smart bullet technology it's like think of if the chinese came out instead of just a short bow a bow that would be be able to locate the target <laughs> no matter how bad of aim the one shooting the bow is I mean, technology is a huge takeoff, and it's going to take things in directions uh, that uh, we can't imagine. And you're right. It's going to get closer and closer playing catch-up, and I think your your computer virus analogy is perfect for that because um, as quickly as we create new technology, the bad guys, again, air quote, they get their new technology, and uh, it, it's like playing leapfrog almost. Um, Walter, you got a, you got a question? And um, please make it quick, please. Hey, man, I want to say to William, uh, man, I get a chance to talk to a famous person, Mr. William. <laughs> Never seen him in person. I've always heard him on the radio. I've seen him on a, I've seen him on Swaggart and on Jimmy Swaggart's program. I, I'm oh, pretty sure William, you left there speaking in tongues, didn't you? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 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 I thought that's your point, Walter. That yeah. Uh, Ponder on that one, William. But anyway, my question is, okay, you guys talk about the progression of uh, socialism leading to communism, leading to dictatorship, which murders their citizens. Buckle up. Here comes the question, William. And guys, do you think Obamaism and Joe Bidenism, deep down in Biden's heart and Joe and Barack insane Osama Obama, that's right, I said it. Don't take the cotton out your ears. You heard me clear. Uh, do you think they have the same murder in their hearts as those murderous dictators? Oh, boy. Don't shout me down. All right. Hey, we'll let uh, the guests answer. Thanks for calling, uh, uh, Walter. Any comment on that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Bill? Well, you're observing the trend, and the trend is that is concentrating power. Imagine if a toddler has a sharp knife. You will tell that to toddler anything to get them to put the knife down. I'll give you some candy. We'll go to McDonald's. We'll go to the park. Uh, once they put that knife down, all bets are off. You take the knife away and you spank them and you say, don't you ever pick up that? They will tell the American public anything to get us to give up our guns, to give up our freedoms. Once we give them up, Forget all their promises. It'll be like China coming into Hong Kong. It'll be like, we're taking away your freedoms. We're tracking you down. You're going to be put into labor camps and disappear. Um, yeah, just real quick on that. Uh, folks, to, to those that are out there of the woke culture, when our guest said spank your children, that's code word for giving them a timeout. Um, just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. No, spank your kids if they deserve it, folks. They'll be better adults. <laughs> but Don't go ahead. Spank them. I, I was, my dad was a captain in the Army, and there were 11 of us kids in our family. And uh, he, he did put the, the fear. My mom used to say, uh, I'm going to tell your dad when he gets home. And uh, we would uh, we'd straighten up pretty quick. But um, anyway. <laughs> but, but I came from a big family also. Same thing. But, but it is a trend. Um, that you observe. So people say history repeats itself. Yeah, but each time it comes around, it's a little bit worse because with military advancements, the, the government, the dictators uh, can, can control and they want to track people. Here's Augustus Caesar, uh, 25 uh, you know, BC, he comes into power 
Uh, and then uh, around 4 BC, give or take a few years, he decides he wants to have a worldwide tracking system. It's called the census, right? I mean, if he would have had drones and cameras and social credit scores and Google search that he could, he would have done that. But the best they could do back then was a census. He wanted to track everyone. But God had a plan behind the plan because, you know, that's when Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem to be counted and that fulfilled the prophecy. I was telling someone, I said, prophecies had to be not clear enough so the devil couldn't figure them out and try to stop them. Uh, but clear enough so when Jesus came, he could walk along the road to Emmaus with his uh, these two gentlemen and, and say, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he was able to point out all the prophecies concerning him. Sort of like a cornfield, you see it from one angle, it makes no sense, but you see it from another angle, you see the nice, neat rows. And so you look at when the what three wise men came to Herod, and they said, we want to see the king of the Jews. What was Herod's response? Uh, tell me where this king's going to be born, and I'll kill all the babies in that town, right? right? If the devil could have figured out prophecies, he would have tried to stop them. Um, anyway. Great. Yeah, well, when when Bill was talking about, you know, all the way from rocks and the progression of weapons, I was reminded of a Randy Stonehill song, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. And part of the lyric says, yeah, we may dress up in tuxedos, but we function like Germanic tribes. It's the same old sin in a modern day from the Club of Cain to the laser ray. Now we can blow everybody away. You know, it's just, I was reminded of that progression. Yeah, I heard someone say, uh, science tells you what you can do. Religion tells you what you should do. Mm. Yep. And uh, just, uh, just to run off your story of pointing out that Jesus pointed out all these wonderful prophecies as he walked with two gentlemen from Emmaus, um, I'd like to point out that he did this three days after being crucified. Three days after being scourged and beaten and whipped and kicked and then nailed to the cross and a sword put through his side and running that sword or spear, running that spear through his lungs and his heart. Three days later, he takes a seven mile trip, seven mile walk with two men just to point out the prophecies that he is who he says he is. So. Just, just a little add-on to what you were pointing out. Sorry, Bill. I love it. I love it. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Bill. You're the guest. Well, I, um, uh, but I, I do think that as we I tell people, history is not prophetic, but it is predictive. Past behavior is the best indicator of future performance. And so uh, Winston Churchill once said, the further back you look, the further forward you're likely to see. In other words, you can see the trajectory. And I tell people, imagine if I put a dot on a piece of paper and I ask you where the next dot's going to be. could be anywhere, 360 degrees. But if I could show you all the dots preceding that dot, and then I show, ask you where, where the next dot's going to be, you could say, well, let me take a ruler and I can put it up here and I can sort of plot it and the next dot's going to be up here somewhere. If all you know is the present and I ask you, where do you think see things going? It's like, I don't know, it could go anywhere. But if I can show you how people have acted in the past in certain situations, you can say, you know what? Uh, I can sort of think that people will sort of act that way in the future and it's probably going to go in this direction. And um, Let me tell you why I appreciate this conversation is because history is no longer taught with cause and effect. It's no longer taught that there is cause and effect in history. It's just not part of the school system. And what you're, what you're saying is that 
you can start figuring out cause and effects by looking at history. You can figure out where to put that dot. And, and that is why I, I'm so excited and um, I'm getting more excited to read your book. You, you, you'd you nope. be an excellent history teacher, just so you know, uh, because <laughs> history teachers anymore are boring. Kids go to sleep in history because they're not learning history. They're learning how to memorize things, but they're not learning history. You'd be a fantastic history teacher, just, he is, just saying. He is, but it's self-study. <laughs> Bill once told me, you once told me that a nation without a knowledge of its history is like a man without his memory. Uh, that stuck with me. That basically, uh, if a country doesn't have its history, it's like a man who has Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. So there's a quote from Arthur Schlesinger Jr. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning historian on John F. Kennedy's staff. And the quote is, history is to the nation what memory is to the individual. And so the thought is, imagine an, an individual who's lost their memory. They forgot who they are. They forgot who you are. You can take anything away from that person. They're like an Alzheimer patient. It's sad. We sort of have national Alzheimer's. Here we are, the freest country the world has seen. We forgot who we are and how we got here. Hey, thanks a lot. Uh, and, and Bill, I'm going to have you on my show again, if you don't mind. We'll stay in contact. I, I was able to hijack your email address during the show, so <laughs> we'll keep you on. You've been a wonderful guest. Thank you very much. Uh, Ed, thank you for uh, inviting the guest onto your show and having him make it onto mine. And, and Phil, <laughs> Phil, Phil, always nice hearing your input. Derek, we'll see you next week. And everyone else, we'll see you next week on A Moment of Clarity. You've been listening to A Moment of Clarity on Wham Talk 1600 with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Be sure to tune in again next week right here on Wham Radio. 